0: Good morning, world, and welcome to Choices, Books, and Gifts, where you always have choices. I am so proud and happy to present a very good friend of mine. His name is Robert Maladnich Good morning, Robert.
1: Hello, Jay. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Believe me, it's more my pleasure. So Bob is an old friend of mine. We go back many, many years, and I'd like to read to you his bio. Robert Meladnich served the New York City Police Department for 20 years, retiring as a detective in 2003. He is currently a licensed private investigator and a licensed clinical social worker, specializing in criminal defense and mitigation. He is the author of four true crime books, as well as an actor, film producer, and screenwriter. He appeared as a backstabbing mafia bodyguard in The Irishman, and most recently in the soon-to-be-released Don Q with Armand Asante, where he has also served as an executive producer. That's quite the accolades, my dear man.
1: Well, thankfully, I was able to survive my 20s and then embark on on a more productive and fulfilling life.
0: So with that... Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up? What was it like? I grew up in the, uh, in, in the Long Island area.
1: And um, one of the things, you know, looking back on my childhood, I always related to the antihero. When I say the antihero, I mean, you know, the, the, the kind of society's outcasts, you know, the Jesse James and, and those type of people. Um, I never rooted for the good guy. I was always rooting for the bad guy. Always, always, always. I used to think there was something
0: wrong with me. Yeah,
1: like, and well, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me then. But, you know, when I look back on um, on some of my choices and decisions, you know, I shudder. But um, as you know, um, you met some of my the people that I kind of idolized growing up. They were guys a little older than me, uh, bartenders we both knew you know, former, you know, fighters we both knew. And these guys were all very intelligent. They all had something in common. They were all very uh, intelligent, but they also had, you know, very bad, you know, alcohol or drug problems. And they were classic underachievers. They had so much potential to do well in life um, or to be, you know, productive and and successful, but they weren't. And they they all kind of, or, or at least the guys that we both know, Yep. you know, died. You know, sort of unhappy. One, one guy took his own life, as we know. Um, but these were the people I kind of idolized and looked up to, right up until my late twenties, early thirties, when I kind
0: of had an epiphany and, and turned my life around. Well, that's 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 great. That leads into my next question. So, when did you know you needed to change? How? When did you know? Was it something specific that happened? And what? were your actions to make those changes?
1: It was a gradual progression. You know, I I spent my 20s, um, you know, drinking very heavily, carrying on. I had a very responsible job. I was was doing very well in the police department, but it was like an alter ego. You know, I would work. I would work eight hours, 10 hours, you know, 16 hours if you made arrests. Then I would, all I wanted to do was go to the bar and hang out with my friends. And I had... I had a, um, you know, a cheers type bar, you know, back then in the 80s where I, I liked to joke, uh, although it's a serious joke. You know, I sp- I pretty much um, spent my 20s there, you know, the, the entire yeah. decade. And I would wake up every day to go to my responsible job, which I did well, but I always felt physically ill. I um, I was always under the weather. I never really felt good physically, mentally or emotionally. I knew I was kind of cheating myself somehow. I had gone to school, to college for journalism, and I had started writing a little bit, you know, immediately after college when I moved to New York City in 1980. I didn't join the police department until 1983. I always felt as if I, um, I kind of cheated myself by kind of giving up the writing. I could have done some freelance writing while on the police department. So I always, I was always very self-critical. And then finally, you know, in my late 20s, I think I just turned 30, thankfully, and I don't minimize the people that have had a lot worse problem, you know, giving up drinking than I do, but um, I remember waking up being really physically ill, you know, being over the sink, coughing and spitting and... And I just said, enough is enough. And uh, thankfully for me, that worked. I know it doesn't work for everybody and I don't want to minimize people that have far more, far more serious um, roads to, to getting themselves together. But for me, that um, enabled me to, you know, for the most part, stop drinking and uh, engage in other activities. I immediately, uh, you know how some people take up running or exercise when they quit drinking. I had to start achieving things, make it up for lost time. So I I took scuba diving classes, and I scheduled a, a trip immediately. But most importantly, and this is something that helped me later on in life, I went back to writing. I started writing boxing articles for a boxing magazine, and I'll tell you a, a kind of an interesting anecdote about that. Um, I was so proud of you know my my newfound uh, magazine writing career. And I went to a, a bar where one of the bartenders was a former fighter that, you know, we we did a lot of carrying on in our 20s. And he heard that I was having some success in the in the with the boxing writing. And he said to me, you know, big time boxing writer. Look, you don't come around anymore. You don't come to the bar anymore. You think you're a big time boxing writer, which I didn't. I was, you know, making a one hundred dollars an article, but it was just so happy. I was proud to see my name. Um, and then, you know, one of when I was drinking, one of my things that I thought made me kind of jovial and, and funny and interesting was I would always tell people, don't ever change. You know, I love you like you are. He said to me with scorn and disdain, he said, you used to say don't ever change. I didn't change. You changed. Yeah. And unfortunately, this man took his own life a couple of years later. He stabbed himself in the heart. So- yeah. I wish that he did change yeah, well, yeah.
0: that's uh, I know the gentleman you're talking about and it, it, it broke my heart when it happened as well but uh, so you're a New York City police officer. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience because it sounds like you were still going through what you were going through while you were a police officer and just in general, what was it like being a New York City comp?
1: Well, when I was younger, you know, when you're young, you don't really appreciate all the good and exciting things that are going on around you. So because I had gone to school for journalism, I always wanted to be a journalist. And I kind of viewed myself as a civil service sellout rather than embracing and appreciating this great opportunity I have with the police department. So it took me a while to realize, you know what a great job it was, how rewarding and fulfilling it was. And looking back, I didn't appreciate this at the moment because you never do when when things are happening. Um, But I really was thrust into some amazing experiences. For example, I went into the Narcotics Bureau In 1986, which was the advent of the crack cocaine epidemic, Um, so I got to see the you know a a bird's eye view of that on a daily basis. I wound up on these task forces, you know, with I don't want to mention the ethnic groups, but um, some foreign um, organizations that were really big in the drug trade back then, and I worked on these uh, federal and, and local task forces. And then when I got promoted. Um, transferred from the Narcotics Bureau to a Detective Bureau, I was dispatched to Brooklyn South. That's what it's called. The, the borough is called Brooklyn South. And I thought I was going to no man's land. I was so disappointed that I had to go there. I knew nothing about Brooklyn. I had been in Manhattan and a Bronx guy my whole career. But then when I land in Brooklyn in 1991, it's the advent of the Colombo crime, mafia crime war. These are dropping like every three or four days. I remember so, so that was another tremendous experience my my girlfriend says I'm like Forrest Gump because I always there's like 3 or 4 degrees of separation between me and major incidents or you know famous or notorious or infamous people I have some sort of connection with so many of them so Brooklyn wound up becoming a phenomenal experience for me especially because of that war and some of the people that I was involved in trying to arrest or arresting one guy in particular, a mafia hitman, um, I wound up becoming friendly with him. He served many years in jail, got out. I wrote the preface for his book. And, and him and I, to this day, are very good friends and have a good relationship.
0: That's fantastic. And, you know, if you don't mind, I, I'd i like to toot your horn a little bit, too. I, I, I knew you all those years as a police officer. And I know that, you know, while you were a police officer, some of the things that happen on the job is you lose people and there are tragedies and things like that. And I just want to tell the people, you know, Bob had one of those tragedies. He lost a, a good man on the job. And, and he went and started a fundraiser for this young man. That's I just want people to know a little bit well, about who you are.
1: Well, let me, let me tell you a little more about that. And I promise all the people listening to this, this was not planned. I didn't know Jay was even going to bring this up. But I had I had um, promoted a boxing match between police officers and friends and family members of the of the officer that was killed in the line of duty. His name was Christopher Hoban. He was killed in 1988 and in May 1989 we had a, a huge boxing match at Gleason's gym in Brooklyn. There were about 20 matchups between cops and, and Chris Hoban's friends and about it had to be a couple of thousand people in attendance completely filled, and Jay, as the Kid Calzone, uh, stepped in, and he, uh, he participated, and he uh, took all of his Queens, New York, dirty, street-fighting habits into the ring with him against a guy by the name of Warren Norman, and we had made up some t-shirts for him called the Kid Calzone and the cops being very uh, biased, you know, they were rooting for their own man. Who was in? They were yelling, "Calzone, go back to your pizza shop!" <laughs> but it was all in good fun. And it was uh, I, to this day, you know, stepping into the ring is a very scary thing. And Jay did it for a good cause. He um, he made himself. He made a lot of us proud, and he did himself proud because he really put up a Herculean effort um, in front of uh, in front of the
0: enemy. Yeah, yeah, figuratively, Some of our friends joined us with that. Yeah. The one gentleman who committed suicide, he was my corner man, and he was so very funny. But those those were, were good and tough memories. But I, I just wanted to put that out there. So, you know, in just, in just
1: one last thing, Jay, uh, to this day, you know, I communicate with a lot of these officers on Facebook, I haven't seen them, you know, I've been retired over 20 years. So I I don't see them anymore, but I see them on Facebook, and inevitably, at least four or five times a year, somebody will write, "How's the kid? How's the kid calzone? Do you still see the kid calzone?" So you left a tremendous impression.
0: I thank you. I thank you. That that means a lot to me. So you know, there's a lot of people out there. This podcast is all about helping others you know and and we have all sorts of walks of life on the show some people in program some people not in program because as you mentioned and it's one of my favorite sayings there's many roads to rome but you know you knew when you had enough and had to make the changes so what if somebody's out there and they're they're unhappy they're not sure they're not living the life they want to live what what are some of the things that you would tell somebody to do and how to go about it, especially, especially if they're not necessarily looking towards a program, but they want to, they want to do it in a different way. I think the hardest thing to do is I think it's easy
1: to admit to yourself that you have a problem because you know, every day you're waking up, you're unsatisfied, you're not feeling good. Um, But the hardest thing, you know, in the, as the AA tenants say is you have to admit that um, in many cases, you just can't do this on your own. But that's really, really a lot harder than it sounds. I remember, for example, you know when I was in the throes of my, my drinking, if I was going to a, a new girlfriend's house or if I was going to a strange city on vacation, I always had to have that little bistro bar near the hotel or yeah. near the new friend. It was so important to me to have a place to call home, like a little new place to call home. And I would go in there and I would BS with the people and I'd make all these friends within 10 minutes. And I'd be embellishing and telling BS stories. But I couldn't imagine not having that. The thought of not having like my little bar to go to was impossible for me to comprehend. So, like I said, for me, it was kind of easy. You know, I, I don't want to minimize anybody else's effort, but you just have to admit enough is enough. It's not doing me any good. It's keeping me back. It's it's not allowing me to appreciate all the other wonderful things I might have in my life. And once you stop drinking or, or don't drink as much or get some type of control where you can appreciate other things, it's like this whole world just opens up and it's... Um, And now, you know, I'm six, I just turned 67 about a week or two ago. And like the last 10, 12 years or 20 years, it's just been, it's been a time of great uh, growth, a lot of uh, achievement. I just kind of, I like to say, I keep outdoing myself. And I'm not saying that in any way with hubris or arrogance. It's just that I feel so much more complete and so much more capable. And most importantly, I just like myself. More than I've ever liked myself in the past. I, I had so much self-loathing, you know, in my youth and in my, even as a young man, it it was so hard to get beyond that, you know, the self-hatred. And, and I think that malady is something that a lot of us have in common, you know, in this world.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I, I do agree with you completely. You know, you you mentioned how difficult I know for me, I took a little bit of a different path than you. And I needed a little extra help and whatnot. and, And I got it. And for me, that's what I needed. But can you tell me what you think some of the major differences are? between then and now? I know you just covered a little bit about it, but like, you know, could you keep relationships back then? Are you in a relationship now? What's life every, like?
1: Every re, Just about every relationship that I was involved with back then, every romantic relationship I was involved with, as soon as we got too close, as soon as one of the women uttered the the dreaded L word, or even suggested by their actions that they were feeling that way, and I know most people will know this this phrase from AA. I would start building a case against them, and I was great at building a case, and I would find all of these things wrong with them, and um, and and I would I, then I couldn't get out quick enough, and I noticed, you know, even in. It's been about 30 years, you know, 35, 40 years uh, since I thought I was like on on a much better path. But one thing, looking back now, there was still residue of that up until, you know, maybe, you know, even 10 years ago. You know, I certainly was a lot better at it. I matured a lot. But I catch myself now, and I thought I was like so healthy, for example, at 50 or 60. I'm 67 now. And I still was suffering with a lot of that residue. So it never really goes away. But when yeah. you get older, you just get this awareness and you're able to pick it up and you're able to uh, understand yourself better. And I'm going uh, to be really honest, and I don't mean to be corny when I say this, but I have a little dog now. A little, she'll be three years old in May. And this little dog has enabled me to just feel that unrequited unrequ- unrequ- love that I never thought I was capable of feeling. Yeah, You know, love in my, in my family of origin, there, there was no real, you know, no physical abuse or anything. But, but, you know, we never said, I love you. You know, that was never conveyed. Um, my mother is still alive. She's 100 now. And we're, we have a very loving, dear relationship.
0: Amazing. Yeah.
1: yeah. But growing up, that wasn't there. And I got this, we got this little dog a couple of years ago. And I, I can't tell you how much this little animal has just changed my life. She gazes up at me with these brown eyes and <laughs> makes me melt. And it just makes me feel so complete. It makes me, it makes me so much more capable of just expressing, you know, how I feel about my partner, my mother when I see her, my brother, uh, people like you. You know, when I was when we were drinking, you know, we would say "love you." We never meant this. I love you, man. You know it's all it's all BS. Well, but but now uh, you feel it. I say it with feeling. It, it enables you me to feel. Yeah. yeah, I think if I and I you know we know we both know people that are still out there hoisting away at the bar, and they're they're not really feeling. You know they're yeah. they're kind of living a a shallow, unsatisfactory life, but they get through day by day. By just numbing their feelings, I don't want to numb anymore. I, I might have twenty years left. I don't want to numb.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. And there's two things you hit home with there. I too, I've never had children of my own, and I too have a tiny little Yorkie, a teacup Yorkie. And I swear to you, I, I, I really, I, I don't know what it's like to have a real child, but it's, it's to me, it's it's my daughter.
1: This you do have, a, you do have a real child. That little Yorkie is a real child.
0: Believe absolutely. It. Absolutely. One other thing I wanted to say, because I, I, what you had said earlier about doing it, doing it yourself as opposed to doing it with help. And, you know, there's, like we said, many different ways. But I find a lot of people, for me, it lasted longer because I was in denial. I understood the truth that you talked about. The understanding, I know it, I know I have a problem, this and that, but I really didn't know there was a choice. And anybody who ever told me, Jay, you need to get some help, I would, what are you kidding me? There's nothing wrong with me. So I think that's so important, what you said about admitting it and then taking the action to to, to go ahead and do something about it.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, and I'll give you an example of something that really hit home to me. And I think back um, about this often. I had gone um, part of my part of my um, efforts to to change my life was I went to the Karen Foundation in Pennsylvania and I did their family their thirty day oh no seven day family program. Yep, I did and it. Too. They really hit some heavy stuff there. I mean that that's no yep. joke. You better be prepared for that, or you're going to come out come out shaken to the core. And they do one of these um, yeah. workshops. You know, you're in there with groups of seven or so. And they put you out in the middle of the group, and they start asking you all these really tough questions, and all the questions you don't want to answer, you know, they wrap something around you. So you wrap, you know, first you wrap something around your chest, and maybe your head. And before you know it, you're completely wrapped. That's because you're closing yourself off. So they would be asking me all these questions, and I would be giving all these great intellectual answers, because I understood, I understood exactly what was wrong with me intellectually. But The facilitator, who was terrific, he kept saying, I don't give a F what you're thinking. We know you're a smart guy. We know you understand all this stuff. I want to know what you feel. And I didn't Uh grasp that. I didn't understand what feelings were. And I think I even left Karen grappling with still being able to tap into my feelings. And it took a couple of more years for that to happen. But this guy was trying to get me to feel... Which was something I had trouble doing from it for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And he was getting so frustrated with me. He was going, Feel, goddammit, feel. I don't want to hear your psycho babble bullshit. Feel say something real.
0: No, that was fantastic. I had done the same thing and it was the exact same experience. You know, you and especially you so more than me, because you are wordy. You know, you've been to college, you're a writer. So I'm sure you could have given them what they wanted to hear, but it wasn't. It wasn't wasn't what they wanted to hear. It wasn't your brilliance. They wanted you to get down to the core. And I think that has to do with what we just said. You know, the work really begins later on when you're in life and having to admit and move forward and and, and dig deep. Because that's the hardest thing. You know, I grew up in an Italian family. You grew up in a, uh, uh, an Italian family as well. And it was just it was just so difficult to express yourself. So difficult. But we did. We're here. I'm great. We made it. We made it to the other side. And we're enjoying life now. We did. And it's we nice did. at our age
1: to, be, to have come this far and, and appreciate what we have.
0: I I do agree with that. The 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 gorillas off my back, and I can breathe, and I'm I'm happy today. I'm happy. I mean, you're insane if you're happy every moment of every single of every part of the day. That's you would be insane. But in general, I'm happy. I, my relationships with you years ago they were based on 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 drinking and carrying on. Now they're based on love. And whenever I have an issue, I love calling you and talking yeah. to you about it. And I I value our friendship just tremendously. And uh, with that, as we wrap up this episode of Choices, remember that life is a series of decisions that shape our journey. I hope our time together was inspiring and motivating. Stay empowered, stay well, and remember, you always have choices. Peace and blessings. See you next week. And, Bob, I love you, and I'll see you when you get back from your little vacation.
1: Thank you so much, Jay. Great to be here. Good luck with the show. It's always a a joy and a pleasure speaking with you.